All right. So I guess we're 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 going to get started just um just to be on time. I know people are still coming in. Um, but welcome everybody. This is a the second session of our private company governance series. And as Lisa said, I'm Claudia Femmons, I'm the current chair. And today we're going to cover the issue revolving the uh, compliance investigation regulation private companies. And we have a truly a, a panel of experts to lead this discussion for us. But first, I want to thank Louis Luha here from the Foley and Lardner to be a true partner in crime here, orchestrating and sponsoring this series for us. And if you're part of the Silicon Valley community, you probably know Louis because he's been you know, in M&A, venture capital, all things corporate, and a great supporter of our director community as well. We also have Louis partner, uh, Tom Carlucci here, who is also another expert. He was a former federal prosecutor, so he knows how to play on both sides of the fence. He will join us for this discussion. And we have Jeff Thomas. Uh, Jeff is the executive vice president of NASDAQ corporate platform. As you may know, the NASDAQ governance solution is really a, a very important tool for corporate governance throughout the life cycle of private companies. And Jeff is, is a, a great expert in all aspects of that and, and another great partner, a great supporter of director community here. We also have Scott Kapoor. I know you don't see him on this screen but he's literally landing wait he's three minutes from landing um and scott is the managing partner of andresen hollowitz uh which many of you know is a legendary uh venture capitalist himself and he has become a true expert of private company governance as well as an educator of it uh his great book the secret of sand hill uh, i'm sure many of you heard of really address you know this balance of interest between management and investor board member is a great read um hopefully he will join us as soon as he land from the airport and with that louis i'm going to pass it on to you to start the discussion for us well thank you so much uh lisa and, and claudia and kate if you're there somewhere for uh uh, getting this group together and it's so nice to see so many uh, friendly faces and new faces so uh delighted to have you all today um i want to give um my partner tom carlucci to a, a minute to introduce himself uh as well as jeff uh here our, our fellow panelists and when scott jumps on he will as well but um tom 30 seconds before the gong rings uh tell us about yourself uh thank you louis uh so as you know i'm your partner I've been practicing for more than 30 years. Um, I spent uh, my first part of my career um, uh, in Washington, D.C., in the Department of Justice, and then eventually transferred out to San Francisco at the U.S. Attorney's Office there, uh, where I, you know, the combined period was about 13 years as a federal prosecutor. And then I joined Foley and Lardner uh, right after that, and have been here over 25 years. Um, and I've been representing uh, both private and public companies, executives, uh, and boards during that period of time. Um, thank you, Tom. Jeff, please say us, give us a word or two, my friend. It's been a while. We need to catch up. Definitely. So Jeff Thomas, Executive Vice President uh, here at NASDAQ, oversee Corporate Platform Business Unit, which is our listings franchise, as well as our investor relations, corporate governance, 
uh, and ESG solutions. We sell those to public and private companies. We've got 10,000 corporate clients around the globe. So most people know us as the, uh, the US Stock Exchange, but we're a, a technology firm in our own right. Uh, and in addition to all the great work we do with corporates, we sell a lot of uh, technology, data, and other solutions to investors and financial institutions around the globe. So thanks, Lily. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, 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 thank you so much for joining. And I'm sorry, Scott's a few minutes late, but uh, I assure you that there's good reason. Um, his plan plane needs to land. Um, but you know, to put all this in context, you know, we're trying to do is obviously there haven't been a lot of IPOs lately, and uh, there there are an increasing number of private companies that are traversing some some waters that are are pretty challenging right now and as somebody who sits in probably a thousand hours of board meetings a year um, increasingly they're private company boards and increasingly they're confronting uh, tough issues um, and you know just to put us in context in, in the last decade um, you know, we we saw the formation of the Silicon Valley initiative uh, by former SEC commissioner Mary Jo white and um, really uh, you know I, I I, ha I hasten to say that it, it made Tom's career, uh, but Tom's career was already made. So it, it just uh, made it a second time or a third time. Um, and we've seen some epic uh, enforcement initiatives right here in our backyard. Um, you know, Theranos is one, you know, Sam Bankman Fried's trial at FTX is ongoing in New York, but he's a homegrown kid. Um, and there have been some others that are still pending and going on. So I'm not going to say names of companies or names of individuals because I have no idea who's on this call and, and uh, um, want to protect the, um, the, the innocent. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about uh, situations um, in the hypothetical sense. Um, but we've seen an aggressive SEC enforcement uh, initiative with 760 actions launched in 2022 alone. I, I haven't seen the stats on 23, maybe Tom has. Um, but they're running the gamut from failures of conduct to first of their kind cases, charging trading securities law violations from uh, to, to, to fraud to, to um, you know, just a really wide variety of, of uh, infractions. Um, money ordered in SEC actions comprised over $6 billion last year, doubling the prior year's amount. And I have to tell you, as somebody who sits in a lot of these private company boards, I used to see the, these actions coming to public companies only, and I'm now seeing them come to private companies, which is why we've assembled um, this group here today. And if you were to talk to the general counsels of some of the Silicon Valley's most active venture capital funds, as well as venture debt funds, who are broadly positioned across the market, they will tell you that they're setting up SWAT teams and they're, they're setting up um, internal functions just to oversee what's going on with all of these in investigations and enforcement actions across their portfolio because there are not a small number of them. And so that, uh, my friends, is the context in which we find ourselves here today. And, and I don't think I need to tell anyone that um, the venture ma capital market has, has finally been in, in, in something I'm going to admit is a freefall. Uh, we're down 50% through the end of Q2, and I think the end of Q3, we're, we're down even larger numbers. I think Q4 is, is, um, is pretty much closed. Um, very few uh, new financings happening. There are still um, you know, follow-on financings and bridges. Um, but what we're really seeing is a shift towards um, you know, acquihires and consolidation of, of startups where venture firms are trying to um, kind of 
find a safety position. And while there hasn't traditionally been a lot of restructurings and bankruptcies in the private company context, I think that's something that we may expect. But in the meantime, um, I think people are going to have a lot of time to say whose fault is it? And they're going to sue each other. They're going to call the SEC and say to them, hey, you know, this person did this and I think you should investigate. And, you know, I, I don't know, Tom, if you have you can give any color about the, the kind of staffing that uh, has been deployed at, at local government uh, enforcement agencies. But uh, I, I think since Mary Jo White came to visit Stanford and announced the Silicon Valley Initiative, it's been a pretty substantial increase in the size of the office. Yeah, uh, the, no doubt about that, Louis. Um, in fact, just recently, um, the head of the SEC enforcement in New York spoke about the increase in their staff. Um, and interestingly, uh, one of their priorities is focus on private companies. Uh, and, and it was interesting to hear uh, part of the rationale was more because they really don't understand the, the industry as much as, and they don't have the optics like they do in public companies. So they're really tending to have now uh, more direction to uh, in, investigate and make sure they have a better sense of private companies. You know, add to that, I mean, you know, talking about investigations, um, you know, most of the agencies now have put in reward programs uh, to reward whistleblowers. And um, I mean, it, it used to be, uh, you know, that if you were a snitch, as I used to say, the old mob, snitches get stitches. Um, and I will change that now to stitches get riches. Uh, because ultimately, if you look at uh, the CFTC awarded a whistleblower more than 200 million, uh, the SEC this year awarded a whistleblower 279 million. You know, so part of this is recognizing um, that this is a money-making venture now for those who uh, really want to, uh, and this, this has been in the public company side for a while as well, I mean, in, in other industries, but the reality is, you know, one of the takeaways to think about this is how do you avoid an investigation really, right? Um, because investigations are um, uh, super expensive a distraction to the organization, time consuming. So ultimately we're talking about compliance, which is a way to try to avoid all of that. Um, and ultimately if you could avoid doing that, then obviously that's the best outcome. Uh, as directors, of course, one of the problems is, um, you know, what's your role, but also, you know, unfortunately sometimes uh, you become part of the direction and target of the investigation you also get sued, and those are other things to think about. So, I mean, ultimately, to the question of is enforcement increasing? Uh, yes, and is there, a, you know, an increased focus on private companies? Yes. Um, Jeff, I'm going to flip over to you, my friend, um, because I think, like you, I'm seeing a lot of um, historically public company directors and public company executives, you know, moving into the private company context because that's where we find ourselves. And, you know, it, it sometimes uh, scares me, sometimes shocks me, sometimes make me giggle that when I see uh, somebody who I'll call a big company person going earlier stage, they say, oh, well, where's the compliance function? And um, I, I wanted to, to ask you to help us set the context of, of compliance in terms of what a board member does uh, at large. You know, we've talked 
last time about the role of the directors in in raising, selling, or folding. That was uh, our last episode of this series. But what about in the meantime? What's a private company director's you know number one job? What's the second most important job? You know, what do you think uh, is is the time that we should see a compliance function? I've thrown a lot at you, so you can talk about any of them. Sounds good. So yeah, I think. You know, you definitely see in a lot of um, private companies staying private for longer. Uh, as a reminder, when you do uh, finally get ready to go public on NASDAQ, <clears throat> 12 months after you go public, you have to have a majority of independent board members. So companies will typically start that process uh, a year, maybe two years before they want to go public, just to have time to get to know the new board and kind of bring them on board. Well, obviously, a lot of folks joined boards a couple of years ago thinking it was a year or two away. Now, maybe it's another year or two away. So now maybe folks who thought they were joining a pre-IPO board, turns out they've got a little bit longer to wait. And so when I kind of think about the role of a, a private company board versus a, a public company board, a lot of the functions are pretty similar. I mean, if you think about from a talent perspective, you know, depending on the, the structure of the equity, you know, it is your job to kind of, you know, hire, train, and then ultimately if you have to fire the CEO. Uh, obviously, if you have a founder with dual class shares, that may not be part of your role in a private company. Uh, <laughs> in the case that that is there. Definitely a future episode, the founder controlled okay. company. Thank you, Jeff. Sorry. Carry you on. Know, but I think, second, I think about strategy, right? You're trying to help to make sure the company is looking ahead, looking around corners. Uh, if you're if you're a big company person, you want to make sure you're bringing your, the value of your expertise and uh, all of your experience. And then the third is really governance, right? It's that that piece that you say is often missing around private companies, but what are those best practices? Oftentimes, one of the first board members of a private company would love to add is uh, an audit chair. Somebody can actually help to, to keep track uh, of some of the numbers. And then obviously the non-gov chair who can help to kind of increase uh, the, the structure and the, the diversity of the board across many aspects, including skills, experience, uh, backgrounds. And so we see that those are really two of the first functions that private companies are gonna wanna develop uh, on their board. And then hopefully they're bringing some of these uh, best practices to the boardroom, right? Things like doing annual board evaluations, CEO evaluations, uh, new director onboarding. A lot of those things don't really always uh, exist uh, on private boards. In fact, uh, we recently did a survey of over 700 board members, both public and private, uh, and we're, we published the results of it. And it was amazing how few companies had those formal processes uh, in place in terms of doing formal board evaluations, formal uh, CEO evaluations, and any kind of a structured uh, new board member uh, onboarding to make sure that they can be a high-functioning board. Um, I love it that questions are already flowing in on the chat, and I want to encourage everybody to use the chat button to uh, drop in uh, questions. And if they're relevant to exactly what we're talking about, I'm going to interrupt people and, and just go right to the questions. If not, at the end, We'll go back to them, seriatim, and hit them one by one. But just going back a minute, Tom, uh, one of the questions from Somesh, thank you, Somesh, is are, are we seeing that the government regulatory, uh, pardon me, government enforcement actions are focused on uh, companies that are venture-backed or PE-backed, or are they casting a much wider net? Does it even matter? Uh, no, it is the venture-backed companies, absolutely. Um, yeah. I will just share that um, I'm I'm also seeing that these things may appear to be coming from disgruntled employees, competitors, uh, uh, 
suppliers uh, that get cut off, vendors that might be unhappy. Uh, so it's it's very hard to tell when when you get one of these uh, regulatory uh, enforcement actions. You know where where the information came from, who was the whistleblower. Uh, but, a, a, but they a perfect segue, Louis, which is I forgot to mention that both the CFTC and SEC reported that 30% of their cases come from whistleblowers. So that, yeah. think about that's very significant, right? That's just not what it used to be. But, you know, I mean, obviously they get a lot more uh, reports than the 30%, but that's if they look at their portfolio of cases, you know, I thought that was a very high and surprising number. Jeff, coming back to you, uh, one of the rules on on NASDAQ is, is of course, that you've got to have a, a whistleblower hotline uh, within a year after you go public, right? Tell us about that rule. And do you find that the introduction of the rule um, reduces the number of whistleblower complaints that go to the government because they're handled internally? Or do you find that there's any correlation? Um, and I'll ask the same question to Tom. A lot of it comes out of company culture. Right. If you have a, a company culture around ethics, if this is something where you kind of have this built into the values of your company and the whistleblower hotline isn't just something sitting on the website, but it's something that is part of a broader culture uh, around your company, I think that's when it really reduces things. If you have a culture that's a little bit more kind of, hey, we're, we're checking the box, it's on the website, but, you know, we don't really talk about raising issues internally. One, I think senior management is oftentimes in a worse position to react because they're not getting that feedback, that voice of the customer. Uh, and then two, it, it tends to have uh, the feeling where people say, hey, if I see something that's going on here, it's not quite right. I've got to go externally because senior management or the board isn't really open to hearing that feedback. So <laughs> having a whistleblower hotline doesn't do much, but having a culture around uh, you know, intentional integrity, that's, that's really what you want to focus on. Great, great point. Um, just to add on there, in one of the uh, recent cases that's gotten a lot of um, profile, and I won't say names to protect the, the guilty or the innocent, um, we saw a stockholder who's very high profile bring a claim against the other directors uh, at the time of the sale of the company saying that you know the, the price was way off what he or she invested and therefore fraud had occurred and, and uh, uh, you know, lit litigation goes on. Um, so the actions can come in any any which way, shape, or form, um, and uh, that's uh, a, a pro tip for everyone. As I talk to what I'll call public company folks coming into the private company context, is you know you can't impose the the whole um, regimen of public company uh, uh, governance. Uh, that you you may be used to in in the public company context into a private company because as Jeff said your number one job as a private company director is to support the CEO whether it's helping her or him find a customer get introduced to another investor you know you've got to be uh, thinking about how does this company survive as most of them fail um, and so. Uh, Introducing compliance is probably not high on the list of, of things that you want to be saying or that other people want to hear. So how do you effectively introduce it? And um, you know, one pro tip I'll share with you all is is what I tell folks is to ask that a compliance minute be added to the agenda for every meeting and simply one to five minutes 
being spent on any kind of compliance topic uh, that you want. And it can be uh, run the full gamut. Uh, um, the second pro tip I would say is having a code of conduct, which I'm gonna again set up my friend Jeff to tell us about because it's another NASDAQ and stock exchange requirement for a public company. But having kind of a very, at least a very high level um, code of conduct that sets out, you know, here are our ethical obligations and here are our principles and asking every employee to certify that they've read it and they're complying with it um, is something that you can do once a year um, with minimal uh, distraction to the business, I would say. But Jeff, tell us about the code of business conduct. Yeah, I think again, it all comes back to what is that culture that you want to have as a, a company? And, you know, it's something that we take extremely serious here at NASDAQ as a public company ourselves. I think a lot of people forget we're not just a regulator, but we're actually a public company. So I can tell you as an employee and as an executive of a public company, it's something we spend a lot of time talking to our employees about. Uh, we have time every year where they kind of go through a certification process. We have a lot of uh, really specific policies and guidelines uh, around things like gifts, anti-bribery, uh, business conduct, all of the things that you want your employees kind of spending time uh, and thinking about. And again, it's a requirement of the public company that you have one of these, uh, but it's really much more important is how do you embody that? How do you drill that into your culture so that it isn't something that your employees are just thinking about once a year when they have to, to sign off on it, but it's something that they're kind of building into their day-to-day their -day activities as much as possible. Um Claudia, I'm going to have to come back to you because uh, you know you've you've been shielded too much here. Um, and for those who don't know, Claudia ran IBM Ventures for just a few years. I won't say how many, and uh, saw uh, hundreds of, of private companies. And and now is an important advisor at NEA, one of the most prolific uh, venture advisor uh, investors there are. And I think she sits on more than one public company board as well. Um, and, and Claudia, um, you know, I want to make a segue back over to you to your advice on, you know, when and how does do you begin the task of telling your your private company, hey, it's time to start thinking about a compliance function. Um, Scott, thanks for joining us. I know it's being a hectic time. We've been holding back your question, so I'm gonna let you let um, we get to you quickly. But you know, it it is it is such a uh, uh, wise advice to ask the company to start thinking about compliance, even though, just like Jeff said, you know, the the the, the critical critical value is to help the company grow and sustain um, the the company. I think just spending a few minutes talking about it, having some idea where we are in terms of the regulatory aspect, in terms of you know the 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 especially when you are approaching that IPO cycle is something very important because we all seen the struggle of firefighting once the company is ready to file and trying to bring that into the 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 structural part of the board is a challenging you know thing to do. Uh, Scott, uh, thank you so much for joining. Um, I appreciate your jumping in midstream cold, but we're going to warm you up real fast. Um, would you mind giving a giving our audience? Uh, we've got sixty odd folks here, and there will be a a, a replay. Just a a quick thirty seconds on who is Scott Kapoor. Um, not all of us have read 
the secrets of Sand Hill Road, but I reread chapter 13 in anticipation of this call. Oh, excellent. Um, excellent. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, thank you. And I'm very, very sorry for being late. I got through customs as fast as I could, and uh, I'm here. Um, so uh, I am a uh, partner at Andreessen Horowitz. We're a multi-stage venture capital firm that does everything from kind of seed through later stage growth investing, mostly in the software uh, area. Uh, by background, I'm a lawyer, although I went to law school and never practiced, so I'm not sure that really qualifies me for being a lawyer. Um, but I've been in the startup world for my whole career. So I started at a company called LoudCloud that was started by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. We were basically trying to build Amazon Web Services probably about 10 years too early, unfortunately. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to join uh, Andreessen Horowitz when we started the firm back in 2009. So uh, I've had uh, an opportunity to kind of have a front row seat on lots of changes in the venture industry, certainly on the compliance side, but also broadly in terms of, you know, how the industry has developed. So thank you again for being here and apologies for my tardiness. Um, not at all. And, and um, what a great time it was in 2009 to start a venture fund. And, um, you know, setting the table here, we've talked about how the market is in somewhat a free fall and that when people have things, have time on their hands and might have some markdowns to make, they're going to start pointing some fingers. And we're seeing a lot of um, uh, regulatory and enforcement initiatives hit the private company sector and whether they come from uh, customers or investors or employees or suppliers or vendors, one never knows. Um, but since Mary Jo White came to Stanford and announced the Silicon Valley initiative in 2016, um, it's gone into overdrive in the last year um, with some hires and some, you know, big high profile uh, matters from, you know, FTX to Theranos and everything in between. We talked about the fact we're going to try and protect the guilty or the innocent, we're not sure, and avoid talking about pending cases where people may have some involvement. But certainly, um, um, we're, we're deep in the thick of it. And right where you jumped in, Scott, is, you know, when is the right time to build a compliance function? And we had, you know, two quick pro tips, which were um, add, a, add an agenda item to every board meeting that five minutes or one minute gets spent on any compliance topic, whatever it may be. Um, number one, two, to have a code of business conduct that, that, that gets infused over time. That's not gonna be overnight into the company's culture. That was a great ad from um, Jeff Thomas. And so that's really where we are. And, and um, Scott, I'd love to get your perspective on, on how you feel about who owns compliance um, in the in the private company context, and you know when you start actually investing any resources into it. Yeah, so I would actually agree with a lot of what's been said. Uh, I would add a couple things. I think a little bit depends on exactly the type of industry the company's in. So, are we truly in a very regulatory oriented industry? So, financial services might be one, for example, or you know various things of that sort. So, I think that might make the difference between when you want to be formal versus informal, I think, from a compliance perspective. But I would agree, and I would just, I would maybe say it very distinctly, which is that at some point in time, and I think very early in a company, you either decide that compliance is an important business objective or not. If it is a business objective, then, which I, I think it should be, then to your point, it's got to be part of the board meeting. It's There's got to be an objective around it. There's got to be metrics around it. There's got to be reporting around it. And just like the board reviews the financial plan, and just like the board reviews you know, kind of hiring and all the other things associated with that. I, I agree with you. I think you just have to decide if you want it to be a first class citizen, which I think it should be, you need to include that. And that doesn't mean necessarily you have to go all the way towards having, you know, audit committees early on or compensation committees or risk committees. You know, those are things I think you can wait to formalize over time, but just making it actually a recurring part of a board meeting um, and making sure that it is reported on like any other metric in the company, I think sets the tone early on that this is critical to the development of the company. 
Um, thank you for that. Um, Scott, you know, one, one question I wanted to ask you, you've seen uh, your fair share of emerging companies succeed and fail. And um, while maybe the majority of your, your private company endeavors have not failed, a vast majority of those will fail. Um, and I, I wondered if you could share a story or two about, you know, your views on, on why a startup fails. And, you know, we know sometimes it's no product market fit. Sometimes it's a bad product. Sometimes it's not the right team, but sometimes it's compliance. And I, I wondered if you might share a story or two. Of course, they'll have nothing to do with your portfolio, which is perfect, I'm sure. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, trust me, we've had we've had more than our fair share of uh, things that don't work, which is unfortunately the nature of this business. So uh, no offense taken and plenty happy to share. Look, I would mention a couple things. So um, we had a public, we had a, excuse me, a private company, and this was publicly reported on a company um, uh, Zenefits that ultimately went through an SEC investigation. And, uh, you know, unfortunately did have some compliance issues. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure I would say the company didn't succeed as a result of that, but there's no question that obviously it was very difficult once uh, kind of, you know, there was a new CEO that was brought in, it was very difficult to kind of, you know, change change the business and reorient the culture and really recover from something like that. Look, it has downstream impacts on how you finance the company because obviously, you know, downstream investors are less interested, of course, in something that has had, you know, issues around compliance. So I, I would say, you know, not to say that there were, were not lots of other wonderful things in that company, but, you know, that's an example of something where, you know, it becomes very difficult to kind of have an ongoing concern with a business when you have something, you know, that comes up like that. Look, on the positive side, I think using compliance as a positive differentiation in the market, um, I would highlight, and obviously this is a company that's in litigation, so there's not, a, I can't say too much, but, you know, Coinbase has been in our portfolio for a long time. It's, of course, now a public company. And, you know, look, I would argue that that company decided very early on that compliance was going to be an important part, particularly given that they were in an industry that was heavily regulated and had a lot of scrutiny, you know, obviously, even before the current SEC chair, kind of in the prior SEC administration, <laughs> there was a lot of scrutiny around that. And, um, you know, I, I think in that case, what they decided was, look, this was going to be a comparative advantage for them relative to some other players in the space. And, you know, obviously, you know, there's still, uh, you know, there are people in the, in the government who may not 100% agree with that. But I think that's an argument where if you're in a regulated industry, potentially think of compliance less of a burden, but more as a way that you actually attract customers and demonstrate not just to the regulators, but demonstrate to the broader community that, um, you know, this is a way of conducting business and a culture inside the company, I think can actually be a positive catalyst for development of the company. Wow, what a great example. And um, I'm, I'm going to not talk about Coinbase for obvious reasons, uh, but uh, what a great example, I will simply say. and. and um, I think it's a segue into um, you know our next question, which is you know what is a, a board member's role in in this? I think the, the folks on this call are are probably uh, independent directors, but some will be uh, nominated by uh, their venture firm who you know feel like they have uh, some some background in this. Um, for this is kind of opening the floor. You know wh what is a board member's role? And I'll I'll go to you, Tom, first. Well, I think the, the simple answer is oversight um, and recognizing that they've got to, uh, you know, exercise you know good business judgment, um, and that comes back to, you know, understanding how the company's being operated and what issues might arise. I mean, we keep talking about compliance, but at the end of the day, compliance is really simply you know, how to figure out what problems you have, right? If you really have a good compliance program and the board is involved, 
um, you're, catch, you're catching the problem, hopefully, before it's become a real difficult issue uh, or an investigation. So, you know, from my perspective, it's asking the right question. Um, you know, what, what, one of the experiences I've had with respect to board members are, and it's, it's going to sound strange when I say this, but it's um, folks sometimes think that they're the ones who don't understand uh, and others seem to understand. And it's asking the question, especially when you don't understand. Uh, and, and I just you know, think that that's more likely going to produce a result in sort of finding out when these problems exist and, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, just to avoid a bigger problem. So in my view, what, it's a, what a great point. Ask questions. Um, duh. Thank you. I'm going to put that in my my follow up uh, blog post to this uh, webinar. Um, ask questions. Pro tip. So Tom, yeah. I'm going to hit you again. Uh, I got, as as um, I, I, I want to ask you this question. You've just been brought on as outside counsel to a company that has $50 million of revenue. So let's say they're two years away from an IPO. There's never been a general counsel. And I'm sure that'll be a recommendation number one is bring one on. But what would you say should be the 90-day plan, the year plan, the five-year plan for bringing compliance into the, the, the discussion and, and to really create a compliance function? You spent a lot of time advising clients on on compliance and i'm i'm curious as to you know how you would think about a, a plan to bring it in where where it isn't because i think the truth is most of the time it just isn't is that to me or is that scott it, in here we're I, we're going to ask everybody but i'm starting with uh, you the, the, i think the answer is uh, it's one word bespoke which is you know and i think you put your finger on it louis when you said start somewhere right no, no one's expecting that a, a company that's in its early life cycle should have a significant sort of compliance officer compliance program. You know, it's ask the question, start, you know, uh, have it on the agenda. But as you evolve, right, that's really the key. Uh, as you evolve, so should your compliance program, uh, your tone at the top, which is what Jeff was talking about earlier, that needs to evolve as well. And uh, so it's, 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 fitting the particular industry that you're in, like Scott said. I mean, if you're in a highly regulated industry, this has got to be something that you're thinking about 24-7. If you're not, it's very different. So it's not one size fits all. It's it's targeted to the risk in your industry, right? That's really what this is about, making sure you're giving it the thought. And, and, and look, this isn't coming out of nowhere. I mean, the government now, the regulators, have all hired compliance officers. You know, they're bringing them in-house to see whether or not when you have a problem or they're knocking on your door, you've got the, the kind of program that you should have, right? So they wanna be able to, to, to test it, if you will. I mean, and as you get more sophisticated, you know, the reality is it's now data analytics. It's not just somebody trying to send the right message out there. It is, are you actually testing your program? Are you doing all that? So to your point from the sort of 90 days to the five year period, it should be growth constantly. And, you know, obviously, are you spending the right amount of money, uh, uh, you know, at the right at the right time? Uh, you know, typically, most companies start with the CFO being the compliance officer, right? It's, you know, and that that makes sense to me. But at some point in time, it's got to progress, you know, from the CFO to essentially a compliance officer with more robust policies 
So it's That's an evolution. a great point, Tom. That's a great point. And I think the introduction of the audit for the first time often brings the first discussion of, of compliance into the into the finance function, hopefully not the first time. Uh, but that's that's certainly uh, one time. I don't know, Scott, if you wanted to share any any war stories of, of how compliance got um, got implemented uh, at, a, at a private company. And, and, and I, I love the last example of Coinbase where it just was designed in from the start at every step and it was something they led with rather than followed up with. But not every company is gonna be, gonna be Coinbase. No, I, I think that's right. But I, but I wanna kind of underscore, I think what, what Tom was saying is you could almost, and I'm not a marketing guy, but you could almost recast the title of this uh, podcast instead of being compliant, you could really just talk about it as governance or risk management. Uh, because I think they're really the same thing. At the end of the day, and, and I think Tom was alluding to this, what's the role of the board? The, the board's job is to obviously maximize the value of the company as best as it can. And I think the way you do that is either you, you know, minimize risks or you uh, create risk, uh, turn risk into your advantage. And you do that in every way, whether that's on the hiring or it's on budgeting side. And I think the problem in my mind, I think in the private company context is we think of compliance as this very separate thing. But I think if everybody started with the basic framework of, look, all it is is about managing risks to the company, and those risks may be regulatory. They might be, you know, kind of maybe we don't have good 49A coverage, for example. You know, we all have examples of this that are important early on. So um, I, I would just almost reframe the conversation here as, and I think that would help maybe many private companies think about this not as a separate function at the early days where they're worried about resources, but more just as part of the culture and part of the risk mitigation strategies for the business overall. Um Jeff, I'm going to come back to you as, as sometimes, uh, you know, the best plans uh, get, get interrupted by new regulation. Um, and so let's say you're in a business and uh, new regulation comes into effect. Um, and and, and um, what's the role of, of, of the board of a private company in, in ensuring that the company's compliance function catches up with these regulatory changes, maybe that they even learn about them at all? Yeah, I mean, I would, one of the things I would say is you've got to kind of uh, begin with the end in mind. So if you're building a business, you know, and you're thinking about exit scenarios, really there's kind of one or two options. One is you're, you're building a company that's going to be ready for the public markets. The second is you're more likely to end up getting acquired. And I think in either case, good compliance, good governance is going to really serve you well in the long run. So if you're trying to build a public uh, ready company, it's something you want to start kind of building into your company culture, your operating cadence, a good 18 to 24 months before you go public. And that's not just being able to kind of close the books and get through your audits, but it's really having those kind of uh, structures and processes and procedures in, in place that you're going to need to use uh, as a public company. But equally, if you're getting ready and you think your most likely outcome is an acquisition, I can tell you NASDAQ's a, a, a big acquirer. You know, one of the things we're always going to look at on a potential acquisition is how good is this company's governance? How good is their compliance program? You know, what are the underlying risks in this business that we as a potential acquirer either want to have or want to avoid? And so I think a big part of that, to your point, Louis, is how do you stay on top of those uh, regulatory topics, right? Most private companies are not going to have uh, a full-on, you know, kind of government affairs team. Obviously, you want to have excellent uh, outside counsel uh, advice. Uh, but watching what's going on at the federal, the state, and the local level uh, can be challenging. There's some great organizations out there that can, can help you uh, with things like this. Uh, TechNet is an organization that NASDAQ helped to found. They do a lot of work at the, the federal level. Uh, 
locally, there's often uh, groups, one here locally, Silicon Valley Leadership Group, great example of somebody who's great at state uh, and, and local level issues, uh, because it's, it's going to be really hard to maintain and, and stay on top of all this stuff without a full-time staff uh, to do it. And then, of course, I'll, I'll put a plug in. We here at NASDAQ try to publish a lot of great thought leadership and uh, topics that you should be staying on top of through our uh, NASDAQ Center for Board Excellence. It's free to sign up for. It's a free resource. Uh, and we try to keep uh, folks engaged and knowledgeable on topics that are coming down the pike. Uh, you mentioned how aggressive the SEC has been around enforcement. They've been equally uh, as uh, aggressive around creating new regulations. I can tell you, even here at NASDAQ, we uh, have trouble sometimes keeping up with everything that is uh, getting passed as new regulations and new proposed regulations. So it's a lot. Um, well said. Uh, well said. Um, I, I would say, share that you know law firms and, and corporate teams like mine have a playbook for uh, getting companies ready for IPO, and it's usually implemented about you know 18 months to 24 months before a company thinks it can go public. And I'm increasingly dusting that off to, to companies that are I'm just seeing hit inflection points and saying, hey, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Um, in kind of private conversations, but um, I, I think. Um, you make a very good point, Jeff, that your your law firms and your auditors have playbooks for for introducing the compliance function, and, and that's what we exist to do. Um, so uh, another pro tip is, is use those resources that are there. Um, Tom, I'm going to flip back to you and uh, put you on the spot again because it's fun. Um, I want to give you a hypo, and um, not that this has ever happened to the two of us before, um, but we get a call from a client, and they've just gotten a subpoena from the SEC to give them uh, their investor presentations from uh, you know two rounds ago, and they're in the middle of a financing uh, right now. Um, what's the playbook? What do you do? Um, disregard it? No. <laughs> Obviously, take it seriously. That's the point, right? Which is something's going on, right? and you wanna get ahead of it. Uh, so gather as much information as you can, start to look internally, You know, figure out what's in those presentations, what's the concern? Is there some misrepresentation? You know, uh, so obviously um, you wanna gather as much information that you can before you start talking to the regulator and responding. So uh, you also wanna to talk to the regulator as well and get as much as much information from them as they're willing to share. They're not usually willing to share a lot at that time, but you know they'll give you some information so you can figure out what kind of problem do you have. Um, well said, well said. Scott, um, turning back to you, what do you think are the most important um, compliance measures that are put in place that actually protect against um, problems in your experience? You know, compliance functions that actually mitigate damages. Yeah, so I think a couple things. Um, you know, at the appropriate times, we've talked about having a formalized compliance, you know, set of activities, whether that's, you know, audit committees, compensation committees, risk management committees. Those are things probably as you see in your practice, you know, we tend not to see those until you get kind of, I don't know, T minus 18 months until IPO. But but there are some companies certainly, you know, more and more, of course, in our financings early on, we have audit requirements for lots of our businesses. And so that's kind of a, you know, a precursor and often audit committee is the first thing that comes out. So I think that's helpful. Two is I would say uh, making sure that you have kind of in the board context, executive sessions at the end of board meetings are really important. And I know that sounds like motherhood apple pie, but I can't tell you how many board meetings I go to where we don't have those. Um, and they, they create an opportunity at least for people to ask questions that maybe they're not comfortable asking in the context of the full board session. And 
you know, I like at least for part of those having the general counsel on those calls on those sessions as well to at least, uh, you know, give them an opportunity to talk. And then the third thing I would say with respect to the general counsel, which is often, you know, kind of the first role that tends to formalize these, you mentioned the CFO, sometimes that's often where it happens too. But also as a board member, making sure that that individual who's in that role understands that, you know, they have the ability to go to the board to the extent that they feel like there are things happening at the company that may not be, you know, reported properly or that might, you know, give rise to concern. And just creating, you know, not a, you know, creating a safe space where if there are conversations that have to happen, people develop a direct relationship with the general counsel or the CFO and kind of, again, create a culture of, you know, reporting in a way that makes people feel like they're comfortable bringing issues uh, to the table. And those are some of the best practices, at least that I've seen in our earlier stage companies before they get to a more formalized structure. So I think I heard a pro tip, maybe executive session for the directors to have just the CFO alone and just the general counsel alone. Um, very, very thoughtful. Um, switching gears, um, nobody thought they could come to a webinar in October of 2023 and think that we wouldn't talk about AI somehow. Um, so the obligatory AI question, here we go. Um, $17.9 billion invested in Q3, like the one bright spot um, in, in uh, the venture data. There's so much excitement, but there's a lot of litigation and, and regulatory uh initiative in this area in fact we had a fact sheet come out of the white house just last night i think um so as as we all know many of these large language models are built at least in part on data that's under u.s copyright protection and several of the copyright holders including major music companies that we won't name have filed suit um yeah, i'm going to start with uh with you tom how do you think about the regulatory risks these companies face and what are companies doing to get ahead of the curve? So, I mean, my sense is, at least for those who are gathering data, uh, it is, uh, at least from my standpoint, privacy. You know, what, what, what are you doing? How are you gathering it? And what are you doing with it? Uh, and who are you exposing? Um, and obviously, you know, it's one of the things companies have to be really careful about, which is uh, delving into the use of AI, making sure you don't expose your own data um, and, and, you know, put it out there on the public platform at large. Um, regulators, I have to say, you know, they're trying to figure out how to react to this as well. It's sort of new area that they've got folks looking at it. There's no question about it. Um, all the regulators are having AI sort of groups. But they're, they're not ready to jump yet, but they're starting to inquire. And I think that they're sort of sitting in the same position we are, which is, where is this going? You know, um, am I out of a job? Is AI going to do this for me? Uh, is the board going to be able to hire an AI program to, you know, answer all of his questions? I don't know. I wouldn't think so. But, you know, that, that, you know, I think the it's a, a pretty wide landscape out there for, you know, how to mess up. And I think you have to go a little bit slow and think about what you're doing. So, Tom, as your partner, you're not going to allow me to sign a legal opinion that um, this AI engine doesn't violate anybody's privacy rights or anybody's uh, copyrights. <laughs> darn it, darn it, because uh, a lot of people ask me for that opinion every day. Um, Scott, any any thoughts about um, how companies can stay ahead of regulatory risk, particularly those that are have suddenly become AI first companies? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I would agree with Tom. I think probably privacy is the most important one. I would make an analogy, though, to uh, maybe the early days. Uh, we were investors in Lyft and Airbnb, and, and it may sound like a strange analogy, but let me kind of complete it for you, which is I think this is an area where 
the companies and the pace of technological development is just going to be ahead of where the regulators are right now. And that's not a knock on regulators. I just think the reality is this is such a fast uh, changing area. And quite frankly, there's so many unknowns. And so what I would encourage companies to do is what those businesses did in the early days is at least have a theory and have a conversation with the board about what are the risks that we're, we think we're comfortable taking and what is the colorable legal theory, even though there may be reasonable minds that disagree on how we're going to approach those things. In the case of Airbnb and Lyft, obviously those were about local, you know, local regulatory questions about whether, you know, kind of, you know, car services or, you know, home services were viable under, uh, you know, existing regulatory structures. And I think you have to do the same thing on AI. So I think, I guess the best advice I would give to people is you need to have a conversation. You want to have a record at the board level that you've discussed these things. And whether your argument ultimately holds up or not, obviously, uh, I think the fact that you had a process and you had a deliberation around it, I think could be helpful to the extent the regulators ultimately look at this and disagree with your conclusions. And I think that's what we can maybe take a lesson from those kind of earlier generations of companies that were probably also, you know, in a very, you know, unclear and rapidly moving technological and, and uh, you know, kind of regulatory era. I just think the reality is, look, these companies aren't going to stand still. And so the most important thing is, what's the conversation we're having at the board? Why do we feel like what we're doing is appropriate? Or what are the risks that we think are appropriate to take, at least to demonstrate that people weren't reckless and that we're kind of cognizant of, you know, the colorable areas here that are still well undefined. I want to drop a quick plug uh, following my friend Jeff here for uh, Airbnb's former count general counsel, Rob Chestnut, who wrote a great book on corporate culture called Intentional Integrity. And uh, I think it's a fabulous book and a, a great topic and encourage everybody to, uh, to take it out. But, you know, looking back 10 years ago, and I think we forget this, that uh, before there was Uber, there there were tax medallions, and you know the, the question was asked of of law firms, um, you know what what do we do if there's no regulation around ride sharing because it's it's it doesn't exist, it's brand new, which is kind of similar to AI, right? Um, and and so people had to make decisions exactly as Scott's saying, you know what is the risk of of going into a new market in the face of of regulation that says it's illegal or the no regulation or ambiguity. And what are the costs and are you afraid of it? And there was a famous case uh, where the city of London went after Uber and even had them shut down for a while. And eventually um, technology prevailed over uh, the horse and buggy. And uh, you know, Uber has a thriving business um, uh, in London. But um, I, you know, I think Rob in his book deals with some of those same questions that Airbnb continues to struggle with um, as, as uh, its business model evolves in the face of changing regulation. Um, Claudia, we, we, uh, I want to come over to you and, and um, ask you to share, as you're seeing a lot of AI companies as well, um, how do you think about regulatory risks that these companies face? Um, they're bringing these business models uh, to, to the fore where it really is unknown whether uh, you know, if you if you're looking at it, if, if what goes into the large language model influences what comes out, you know, who, who's in charge of what comes out, who has rights to it, um, somebody's. How do you think of the, those risks, and what are you seeing companies do? I you know it, it is already well said about you know the issue of you know privacy. I think that is the the the, the most important issue when it comes to AI. Um, you know, is 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 also the right to the use of data, right? There is going to be a tremendous um, 
uh, amount of you know litigations about whose data are you using, in what way are you storing it inline, are you processing it offline? Uh, there's a lot of issue regarding the data sources. Are you just an aggregator or are you, you know, a, 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 a owner? Those type of privacy issue, I think, is going to dominate and the company needs to have a clear sense. And of course, you know, California, the UK, you know, all these new regulations that come on the privacy um, is, you know, is almost trying to up to, you have to almost go negotiate state by state you know, because the regulation differ in which we, so you have to, in, in many ways, um, deal with it at the very local level as well, not just uh, as a larger uh, um, sort of a, a part of your business. I think that is, you know, I always, uh, for a data company, you know, I think the, the, the privacy will remain a key issue uh, for the business. Um, well, we've covered the AI question and, and the other bright spot in investment data is, of course, climate change. Um, and that's been a very active area of discussion amongst the SEC lawmakers and investors. Uh, that's climate disclosure, uh, because that's the one thing that uh, regulators can, can force us to do. They can't actually force us to clean the environment, but they can tell us, <laughs> force us to say things about what we're doing. Um, California has just passed a pair of bills that will require companies of, of a minimum threshold to report on carbon emissions, and, and, and that's directly going to impact private companies that have sustainability claims. Jeff, I, I'm going to uh, move over to you as NASDAQ has been um, active in this area. Um, how do you think private companies should be preparing for climate disclosure requirements? Sure. So I think the SEC proposed their rules back uh, last fall. Uh, it was one of the most widely commented on uh, proposed rules we've seen in a while. Uh, we at NASDAQ gathered up uh, feedback from all of our listed companies and prospective listed companies actually published their own comment letter kind of stating uh, where we thought they got it right and where they uh, maybe went a bit too far. Um, and so we've all been kind of waiting in anticipation to see what the SEC is going to do. And then all of a sudden, uh, Gavin Newsom in California come along and, and you know, steal thunder at Climate Week and put out their own regulations. And so the important things for directors to know about this, these do these climate disclosure rules apply to all companies that do business in California. There are thresholds. So one of the bills around scope one, two, and three emissions is for companies with over a billion dollars a year in revenue, not in California, just total. Uh, and the second, which is about having a climate risk disclosure plan is for companies with over 500 million uh, in revenue. Again, companies that do business in California, not all that revenue mm -hmm. has to come from California. Now, again, there's phase-in timelines here. There's more legislation to be written. So I think this will uh, continue to be a, a topic for the next couple of years. But it's also important to, to realize that that's not the only uh, disclosure that could come to private companies. Europe has also been uh, moving forward with the uh, Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD, which does apply to uh, public and private companies doing business in Europe. And honestly, the, the standards there are much lower. It's kind of a, you have to hit a couple of the different criteria, but you're talking about some of the numbers around 250 employees in Europe, balance sheets of 20 million euros, annual revenues of 40 million euros. So again, much smaller in scale could be a much bigger impact uh, to a lot of the companies that the, the audience kind of sits on the board of. So 
what can you do as a, a private company board member? Uh, get educated, um, try to get some good advice and kind of understand which rules are going to apply to you and when. And then again, don't just think about climate and other ESG disclosure in terms of regulators, but also start asking the question about what are the rest of our stakeholders asking for? Oftentimes I talk to private company uh, CFOs, they say, we'll deal down with Republic. I say, talk to your CRO, see if this is coming up on RFPs when you're trying to sell your products and services. And sure enough, that they figure out that there's actually demand from their customers. Think about your employees. What are they asking for? What do they want to see in terms of disclosures, uh, as well as your uh, your communities? And so, of course, right in line with everything we do here at NASDAQ, we try to make things more efficient through the use of technology. So again, quick plug for our NASDAQ Metrio ESG reporting solution. Uh, we also do a lot of advisory work around this. But as a, as a director, you really have to kind of take a step back, say, what does this apply to? And then outside of the regulators, who are those uh, key stakeholders that we need to provide some of the dis disclosure to? And just like financial reporting, this takes time to develop, build the systems, processes, and people around it uh, to really kind of make an impact. Um, we are, thank you so much, Jeff. We're, we're just near the end of this program. And Claudia and Lisa, we pulled it off. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I unfortunately there are, there are so many interesting questions in the chat sessions that uh, we are not able to get to. Um, but I, I really appreciate all of you for taking the time to uh, start this conversation. Hopefully, there will be other opportunities that we can continue on and dive deeper into it. But it's it's been a, a wonderful way to really start the, the the private company governance. We refer to many material, the culture, um, you know, Scott's book on the secret of uh, Silicon Valley. There's a lot of reference that we have gone through in this sessions that we will incorporate as part of the follow on email to the participant and and those that will be watching this um you know uh when we when we put it online but for now thanks everybody for being here thanks tremendously to our speakers to taking the time for us and hope to see you guys next time